Welcome to the Just Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Today on the show, I'm excited to have Carl Almar back. Carl, thanks for doing this. Hey, Jess. Good to see you again. So um, can you give us just the, the, the quick overview from uh, entrepreneur back to business school, uh, growing digital ocean, and now managing director at M13? Yeah, I'll give you uh, the whirlwind tour. Um, I think we went through it probably in more detail on the last podcast, but this is an opportunity just to revise that. Um, so yes, I, I grew up as uh, an engineer. I studied essentially engineering um, and then came out and uh, a couple of years out of out of college, I started my first business in the late 90s, a tech startup back then. Um, was able to, you know, went through the whole bubble with that and was able to exit that business in 2000. And a year later, left the company to go do an MBA at Columbia, after which I started a fintech business, um, which then uh, we grew to about 140 million in revenue in 2009 and then sold in early 2010. And then most recently um, joined a company called Digital Ocean in early 2013, just as they launched their first product, helped build that business up to 250 million run rate, but obviously uh, um, uh, unicorn status in terms of valuation. And uh, that business has since gone public and obviously is significantly bigger than it was when I was there um, from that point. Uh, after DigitalOcean, I was there about five and a half, six years. And then at the end of that, I jumped over to M13, where over the last three and a half, four years, I've been an investor and uh, just kind of looking for, I guess, that alpha in the market and the great founders that are out there building you know, the next big unicorns, the next big decacorns that we're excited to uh, to get behind and work with. Uh, one of which we had on the show this year, Capsule. Uh, congrats yeah. on that success. Yeah, fantastic company. Uh, Eric is a great CEO and they're really doing some good things. So excited to see. Uh, we love What I love about companies like that is they're actually impacting life, quality of life for people. And it actually has a really meaningful value to, to the market. So I, I really appreciate what Eric's done there. And and uh, if you haven't used Capsule and you're listening to this podcast, go and check them out. They definitely make the pharmacy a much easier experience. So, uh, and and DigitalOcean, just for a scope for people, like at its peak valuation, I mean, how did it, how high did it get at the absolute peak? Yeah, so it, it jumped up to about 15 billion valuation, wow. which is uh, mind-boggling. I like saying that yeah. I, I built a deck of corn, but it didn't stay there long enough for me to be able to keep that claim. But uh, I think it'll go back there. It's definitely, you know, it's definitely a very, very valuable high growth business. I mean, the beauty of DigitalOcean is I really feel we built a relatively unique machine in its time in that it's cash flow positive now. It's profitable, EBITDA positive, um, still has very strong growth rates. Like this is very unusual in the modern tech world. And, and I'm really proud of that. And I think that speaks to the longevity of the business. And as the markets do eventually recover, I think that DigitalOcean will be rewarded for that. So I expect it to get back into Decacorn status pretty soon. I'm, I'm holding on to my equity with that hope in mind. And it has a great CEO now in Yancey. So um, I have very, very high hopes for that for that business. But yeah, it got to 15 billion. I think we IPO'd at somewhere between five and six billion. It's down closer, you know, hovering around the IPO range now. But uh, but uh, I do believe there's more value there. So um, what I would love to talk about today, we, we were kind of discussing a little bit before we hit record, is this idea of like your lessons, that kind of zero to billion story, and and you know at M13 how you bring these philosophies to help your portfolio companies like Capsule and and quite frankly like the CEOs today who wish they had an investor like you or wish they had a board member like you who'd actually done it before, just what kind of advice um, that that uh, entrepreneurs today can be uh, trying to internalize? 
Where, where do you want to start with all that? Well, I mean, why don't we start at the beginning and talk about, you know, the, the DigitalOcean journey and then that kind of in itself will seed some of the some of the guiding points and guiding principles to kind of how we try and help companies now. Um, so, I mean, I'm happy to, to just kind of lay the groundwork and feel yeah, free to go for it and take me down that path. But um, when I joined DigitalOcean, I joined literally as they were launching their first product. Um, the four of the founders were there and, uh, and essentially they had kind of built this, you know, your typical young, kind of aggressive, ambitious business that, that hadn't yet been kind of had the foundations and the like built around it yet. So I came in with a view to help them close their first round of, of institutional investment. Um, they already had a term sheet, but they needed to build a whole bunch of structural things around the business, uh, you know, foundational financial foundations, projections, you know, setting up credit lines to build the infrastructure they needed to build like a whole bunch of those basic um, pillars. And it took us about three months to get that done, but we did get that done. And in that time period, you know, I got a taste of what, uh, what, how big of an opportunity, you know, DigitalOcean really could be. I think one of the things I was tasked with in those very early days is, hey, like build a model around what this business could become. And my model spoke to a company that could do hundred million in run rate within three years. And, you know, looking at that model and saying, well, if I believe my own numbers, then I can't ignore this opportunity because it's very, very rare at that time to get a company that could grow that quickly. And so I jumped on board as COO and we started that building process. And, and the really interesting story about DigitalOcean is because um, I did start so early, it was really bare bones when we began in terms of teams and structure and process and everything kind of had to be built from the ground up. And it was really my task departmentally, department by department, section by section of the business to continue to build, you know, the basics and the foundations of that. And then ultimately to bring the right teams in, the right leaders in to run those teams and, and drive and drive the business. But um, with that being said, I think what was so exciting about it is very early in the, the whole experience, you could see how this business had potential to become something very, very large. So I'll jump in and talk about that. <laughs> so what we saw right away was um, what DigitalOcean was really building was really building a machine. Um, you know, the, the founders before me had really kind of perfected how they wanted to speak to their target audience, which was the developers in the market. They very clearly recognized that there was a gap in a potentially massive cloud market where developers weren't really being given you know, attention, the Amazons of the world back in those days were really much more focused about on the decision makers, the CTOs, the CFOs, but not the developers themselves. So DigitalOcean was built on the basis of how you deliver high performance, uh, relatively inexpensively with absolute utility and simplicity and making it very, very easy for anyone to get up and running. And immediately that began pretty much just as I started, you could see very, very quickly the sentiment that was being returned and, and kind of the organic machine that was being built. Well, can, can I pause you just for people who aren't familiar um, and for folks not, not familiar with the space in general, uh, in its most simplistic form, what, what was the digital ocean offering at the time? Yeah, at the time it was simple um, uh, compute, computing services. So it was a slice uh, of any CPU or computer that we had in our data centers that you could use as a remote server for your website or for your application or for wherever it was you were building. And, and it was as simple as that at the very, very beginning, simple compute offering. 
ultimately, obviously, that evolved into a much more complex, complete cloud offering. But at that time, it was really targeted towards the individual developer that was just playing around, hacking, wanting to launch a little website, test an application, just do something very, very small. And they had this, you know, uh, $5, we called them droplets, which were our kind of compute slices, $5 droplet up and running in 55 seconds. That was the basic theme of how we started. So to a developer, wow, it's cheap. I can pay for it. No one, you know, it's not a worry to pay for it. And I can get up and running in 55 seconds rather than having to come, you know, go through this convoluted process of setting up my Amazon environment. Great. And I mentioned Amazon because at that time, Azure didn't really exist. Um, GCP didn't really exist. Uh, you know, none of these other players were really out there. Really, Amazon was kind of you know, um, innovating in the marketplace ahead of anybody. And so, um, as I said, the key was we began to see more and more of just this organic machine. And I think one of our proudest points to this day, myself and the founders, is that even though when I left, and I left after all the founders had already left, so when I left, company was doing about 250 million run rate. Today, it's approaching a $600 million run rate. I'd say 80 to 90% of that revenue is all based upon the machine that we built. And now there's been some supplemental additions of other services and things on top, but the core machine we built has really driven most of the usage of the platform. So it's just exciting to see this machine continue to build and turn. I think Yancy, the current CEO, is, is looking to get to a billion dollar run rate in the next couple of years would love to see him do that. I don't see any reason why he wouldn't. So um, it just, it makes for a very, very interesting kind of model of how to build a business that really kind of builds on itself. Um, the irony is we made a lot of mistakes along the way. We messed up a lot of things along the way, but the strength of this core machine is what really carried us through and allowed us to fix those mistakes and ultimately get to a place where we had uh, you know much better operating product at the end of the day. Well, maybe my first question there is, for, for myself, for other entrepreneurs listening, CEOs, founders, um, what are questions we can ask ourselves to become objective about is, is the core of our machine really as yeah. good as we think it is? Or, you know, like, how do we find out if our baby is ugly? Yeah, no, it's a very, very good question. Nobody's baby's ugly, right? <laughs> it's all in the eye of the beholder, but the reality is, you know, some babies weren't built to be decacorns. So, um, or weren't born to be decacorns, unfortunately. So, um, yeah, I think it's all about product market fit. Uh, you know, I cannot claim any of the credit for establishing product market fit. I recognized it when I got there. I don't know if uh, it was by design or by pure luck, but it was there for us. And, you know, we had an offering that was really engaging with the market. I think um, Mark Andreessen once said that, uh, I think it was Mark Andrews, it might have been someone else, so I might be misquoting. But, uh, you know, you know when you have product market fit when you just can't build the service fast enough. And, you know, you, you just can't support the growth fast enough. And that's really the situation we were in. I remember for the first year that I was there, we had a uh, sticky note process. We had um, every day that we had availability of droplets, we put a, a green sticky note on this kind of conference room wall we had. And at one point it was almost all red. <laughs> and then kind of, I was tasked to, okay, go figure out our infrastructure strategy, go build it out. And periodically over the next few months until we were like a quarter or two quarters out, it went from all red to slowly getting to all green. And we got to a place where we actually always had capacity. 
but for a long time we just struggled to keep up with the amount of demand that we were seeing and that is that is um, you know the most obvious example of product market fit but how do you translate that into any other business into any other environment you have to think about your business and i think if you if you want to be really really um reflective you know take a step back and say how much of a struggle is it for me to get people to use my product if i'm actually struggling to get people to use it then something's not quite right if if I introduce it to people and they immediately buy into it and they immediately start using it. I'm, I'm actually seeing, you know, intention. And then the next step beyond that is if they tell their friends how good it is and their friends start using it, then I have true product market fit. But I think it's as simple as that. And a lot of people go through a long period of time where they painstakingly pushing to market to try and get the market to use their product without realizing that the reason why it's not actually catching wind and it's not actually moving is they've got to make adjustments to their product. They've got to get to product market fit. And I think that's one of the first things we look for when we're trying to invest in a company, but also one of the key things we can even help with, you know, if we've invested early and we're helping a company kind of get through that, you know, that hump, that early hump in their business. Yeah, as a practical exercise, what does that look like? You've got a CEO, it seems like they've got something that maybe they haven't quite achieved the level of product market fit needed for the kind of goals they've set for themselves. What, what are those conversations like? What's that process like? Yeah, um, so everything has to be done strategically. You can't just like throw things out there and uh, you know, we see a couple of mistakes. A couple of mistakes are people try and pivot too much. Say so they like, oh, this isn't working, I'm completely change my business. And then two months later, not working, I'm gonna completely change my business. You do that enough times, you're just gonna run out of money and you're not gonna have anything to go to market with. So you have to have belief that the core offering that you're giving. I mean, the reason why people invested in you is because the core offering you're giving has given signals that people want it, right? So you have to believe that you've got a company that that has a product or has an offering that in essence people want. The other thing that people do is they throw out changes and iterations to their product without really mapping it out. They just randomly throw things out. And so then what happens is when they put something out, a piece works, another piece doesn't work, they throw it all out in, you know, maybe with the bath water, and then they do something else. And they're not catching those little signals of, hey, this went right, now push on that lever or push on this lever. And so one thing that we, you know, we would we would do with the team is to actually figure out, you know, what is your iteration plan? Like how are you gonna get from uh, where you are now to where you want to be and iteratively do it in a way where you're able to, you know, roll out product changes and adjustments and test exactly how those are impacting your customers and get the appropriate feedback and things like that. And there are a couple of companies that we've done that with and they've evolved their product and got it to a place where they're now seeing real product market fit, which is, which is really exciting. Whereas the first iteration, either it was the wrong target audience or it was a slightly wrong product or it just needed to solve a couple of key problems that had not been solved um uh you know the the, the product wasn't solving or, or you know whatever but um yeah so that that's kind of the on the product side from a partnership standpoint that's kind of how we would work with them to help them figure out like what it, you know am i actually capturing uh, a winning formula here what's an example of what tracking like that could look like I mean, is this like a, is this like a, I got a Google sheet or do you do other specialty softwares or what does that tracking look like at more, a more uh, nitty gritty level? Yeah. I mean, um, 
it's not a Google Sheet. <laughs> it's and might that might be involved. I think there's you know they can use a project management platform, whether it's a Trello or something more complicated than that. Um, but they're also going to have dashboards that are going to track key key indicators of kind of key performance indicators. The thing that we would look at with them is the dashboards. So you would trigger out exactly how the audience is reacting. Are you trying to drive engagement? Are you trying to drive adoption? You know, are you trying to reduce churn? Like what are the things you're trying to do? And then as you begin to introduce, you know, key features or key iterations to the product, how are those triggering the behavior of the people that are seeing them? And so a lot of it is data oriented. And so um, it's usually our reviews, our discussions are going to be generally based on data and dashboards. Um, the product people in the company are going to be using, you know, uh, Figma or whatever they use to kind of map this out from a design standpoint and an engineering standpoint. But we would probably, you know, be more focused on the results on the back end and kind of figuring out directionally uh, if they're building the right way. Okay. So last question on this one, then I'll let you get to the next, the, the next principle. What about with the large enterprise accounts? Like, you know, somebody's lucky enough to, to get these major accounts where, you know, churn is not an option. Like, we need to keep them, right? Yeah. Um, how do you, how does this process change or how do you think any differently um, with, with those type of uh, clients in a, in a portfolio company's yeah. client list? Yeah, that's interesting because we get this question a lot. Um, you know, we, we honestly um, focus more on kind of large user base type offerings. We don't really do enterprise as much, but, uh, you know, inevitably every now and then a big enterprise will come in and say, hey, I want I want to do a big deal with you. I'm going to be your biggest customer. You know, we're going to sign a deal. It's going to triple the size of your business overnight. And unfortunately, we have to remain very wary of those opportunities because one of the key guide points is, and we got this by the way, DigitalOcean a couple of times, we had people coming and saying, we want to put, you know, a million dollars worth of infrastructure on you. And at the time we would be doing, you know, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars a month in revenue. And they want to give us a million a month on top of that or something like that. Um, but what we've always looked at is, Hey, how much does this actually impact our engineering efforts and our product efforts? Like, is this actually diverting away from our product plan? There's a difference between product plan diversion versus, um, uh, uh re, you know, reprioritization of the product plan. So reprioritization is okay. You're just saying, Hey, we've got a demand. Let's move something up the curve and something down the curve. But a reorientation of your product plan actually takes you away from what you're building for your mass customers, your mass audience. And no one customer is worth that when you have a very wide customer selection. And what we found a lot, I found in previous companies and with other portfolio companies, but we didn't do a DigitalOcean, is when a company decides, oh, I'm going to go for that, their whole business becomes a service organization for that one customer. And that's very, very problematic. Now, some businesses are built to be enterprise businesses, but even them, even those businesses are not going to live and die by one customer. They still have to have an offering that allows them to, to produce a solution for multiple customers, but they're probably far more burdened than we are with the bespoke impact of, you know, enterprise customer requirements and demands. Um, but as I said, on, on the types of business we invest in, the type of business DigitalOcean was, we, we are very, very weary of that. Now there does come the case where, you know, a, Enterprise comes in and says, I want to give you a million dollar contract or a $10 million contract. And oh, by the way, it fits in your product plan. Maybe there's some reprioritization, but you can do it within your product plan. You know, what we'd often advise um, 
founders is to literally, you know, formalize that detail. Like, this is what we're built for you. This is exactly what it is. We're selling you what we have, not what we don't have. And then if they take it, great. You know, why would you say no to a, to a big opportunity like that? But always be wary of what are the, you know, what's the, you know, um, what's the subtext and what's the kind of, what are the details between the lines and just make sure you're not getting yourself to a situation where you're just falling into this service organization type model, which can actually really limit your growth in the long term. Yeah, no kidding. Tail ends up wagging the dog, right? Yeah, yeah. So go, so, should I go back to some of the DigitalOcean? Yeah, yeah. Yep. So yeah, so, so going back to DigitalOcean story. So really that was the first thing is like, we really recognized we had product market fit, which is very, very exciting. But, you know, the first reaction to that, you know, is business is growing. You know, we, we got, you know, our investment. Six months later, we're going out to the market. We got a 10x valuation and we're raising 10 times the amount of money. Um, and at that point, uh, Andreessen Horowitz jumped in and, and kind of participated in our Series A, led our Series A. And so we did a much bigger round in Series A. We now flush with cash. Uh, we have a business that's growing. Do, do you disclose how big those rounds were? Like how much your first one was versus your Series A? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, at this point, I think it's probably all public because it's a public company. But uh, the first round was, uh, I think, about 3.2 million. Um, and the follow-on, uh, the Series A was 37 million. Um, and the Series A was done at a $150 million post, whereas the first round was probably sub $15 million post. So it's very, very big six-month transition business. So we closed the first round, I think, in June of 2013, and we closed the, um, uh, the Andreessen round. I know we signed the term sheet in January. I want to say we closed in February. Um, but that's the time frame of the following year. So literally like a six, seven months gap between the two. We needed it. We were growing so quickly. We needed to get funding. Now, this is where the next fundamental mistake happened. This was kind of a rift in the leadership in, in kind of the leadership team around how should we grow? And, you know, the way we ended up going was just really throwing money at the problem and just try and get as many engineers and as many product people into the box as possible, not actually thinking about how do we organize it? How do we structure it? How do we level it? And I think through the year of 2014, we, we built a relatively big organization. We jumped up to north of 100 people. But in doing so, uh, I think we probably lost 30 to 50% of the people we hired because we had no structure for them. We had no, you know, no leveling and no recognition of talent. And obviously, when you lose 30 to 50% of your people, you're generally losing the better ones. And so we come to the end of 2014, and we really are in somewhat of a cultural crisis in the firm, and recognizing that we have a very, very bad cultural environment, engineers are not getting work done, it's just not really coming together the way we wanted. And that's where we had that kind of, you know, come to Jesus moment of this isn't right, we need to fix it. We came in and kind of turned the whole thing around. And uh, in January of 2015, we kind of initiated a formal effort to kind of fix the organization, uh, built structure in the engineering teams, started to build engineering managers. Believe it or not, in 2014, we didn't have any engineering managers. It was just all engineers. And, uh, and started kind of leveling and figuring out where people sat in the organization. And then ultimately we brought in uh, Matt Hoffman is our head of people who's now with me at M13 as well, one of the best people leaders in the market, if not the best. And with him, he and I partnered together and really turned the whole business around from a cultural standpoint, 
I think by the beginning of 2016, we voted like best place to work in cranes or something like that. Like we literally um, completely reversed. We did a whole bunch of things around that, but uh, go ahead. Well, can you just give us a couple of examples, uh, you know, yeah. of those whole bunch of things, what you felt like were maybe the higher impact ones? Yeah. So one, the two things we recognized was um, people didn't know where they belonged in the organization. And second thing was the lack of transparency. And so people not knowing where they belonged was all about structure. So we built in a whole structural, we reorganized the whole business and we created layers of different la levels of engineering. We started grouping them in functional groups. We started um, thinking about engineering management to be able to manage all the process between that. And we even brought in um, one thing I recommend to any engineering or product firm, uh, technical program managers that start to organize all the work and make sure that people felt really productive and people were really executing on the things they wanted to do. So that was all. First thing is oriented around um, kind of where people belong and how people feel like they fit in the organization. And the second thing was transparency. And so what we started to introduce is kind of a communication methodology with the firm as a whole. We did these uh, ask me anything every two weeks. We called them AMAs. And the idea of those was we could get the full leadership in front of the whole company and basically answer any question people wanted and then keep people updated on everything that was happening in the company. So now suddenly people started feeling more like a family, more like they belonged, more like they were part of the journey. And so I think the combination of those two things is two core triggers. You know, we also bought, built a whole talent team. We started doing a lot more kind of team building events and activities like that. But all of that was secondary to those two main pillars that we established to really create kind of more of a dynamic of people, again, understanding where they are in the organization and also transparency around what was happening in the organization. So that's something actually we see a lot of. And uh, across the portfolio, we've often seen people kind of just building their organizations without thinking as much about the structure. I think we avert that proactively and kind of get involved whenever somebody raises money or takes our money and help them think about how to build their organization. You know, we have a couple of key roles that we recommend but uh, head of talent is something for an organization that's planning to build pretty quickly head of talent is a role that we really think highly of and we think makes a huge difference in a company that's growing from 20 people to 100 people in the space of a year and so um we one of the key things one of the key learnings is don't let companies fall into the same trap that we fell into just flush with cash and kind of throwing it at the problem rather than really strategically thinking about how to build a business. Well, uh, it's funny how when you when you say it that way, it sounds so simple, but I'm sure at the time it, it took like a little bit of reflection to come to that conclusion. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, especially when we have, you know, a bunch of type A, you know, very, um, very strong minded partners that on founders that all kind of want to do things their own way. And so um, people problems are your biggest problems. I, I don't think I don't think founders realize this when they start companies and start building companies. They think they're there to solve a solution for customers. But at the end of the day, they're left holding the bag on people problems. And um, and so really getting ahead of people problems and building cultures that work for you instead of against you, such a huge difference in being able to scale and being able to build something of real value. Uh, we take that very seriously internally at M13, and I think we have an amazing culture internally, but we also look for it in our founders. Like, you know, what is your relationship with your team? How, how do you lead? You know, can you build 
you know, a large organization that can, you know, do billions of dollars worth of revenue? Like, is that viable for you as a leader? And um, these are all key challenges that any founders will face. Makes me think of like the, like lean operational excellence principles. Um, the, the Japanese word for it is uh, pokiyoke, which I think is really fun to say. Um, <laughs> this idea of like mistake proofing. Yeah, you know, and so for them, a lot of times it's like in industrial environments, it's like, how can you make sure somebody doesn't chop their hand off in this big machine? Well, let's add an extra button. So they have to push a button over here and reach over here to pull a lever. And there's yeah. no hand free to get, you know, they don't have an extra hand to get chopped off. Right. Yeah. Um, that's a pretty extreme example. But like it, as you're talking there, I'm just sitting here thinking like, yeah, that intentional strategy up front of all those things that you brought up of like how you want your people to feel and uh, the intentionality and, and all these things of like, you know, how could someone mistake proof the people side? And you're obviously not really going to be able to do it, but like how much yeah. could you mistake proof by intentionality of like cultural design in advance of growth so that you can grow without losing it? Yeah, it's interesting because it's become a lot more prevalent in society over the last 10 years since we had to deal with it. Um, now I think it is more in the forefront back when we dealt with it, it was kind of ignored a little bit. I mean, 10 years earlier, my previous company was completely ignored, but society has evolved and people I think have realized that kind of a happy, well-positioned employee is going to produce twice as much for you as an unhappy one. So I think that's worked in, in, in the right direction. So I don't think people are surprised when we say to them, Hey, you need to think about X. Now, founders often, you know, will fight and say, that's not my priority right now, but getting ahead of it does help. And we found that time and time again, and we found time and time again, where we have gotten founders to hire the right people. They'll come back to us and say, that's the best hire I've ever made. And, uh, and they realize it very, very quickly when they see the benefits of it. And so, um, I think in general, our whole approach, which may be relatively unique in our industry is just very proactive. Like we really do think about what, what is going to happen with your business as you take your next steps and how do we actually help you get through that rather than just reacting when something goes wrong. And so that's really, really worked very well for us. And I think works really well in our partnership with our founders as well. Can I ask at DigitalOcean, how did your marketing and new client acquisition or sales, how did that evolve over time? Initially, it was all one person, you know, one of the co-founders, Mitch Weiner is kind of was like the key marketing person. We initiated, I think, Moisey uh, Uretsky, who was also one of the founders, kind of initiated a content um, strategy before I joined, where they started just kind of producing and putting content out to market. Um, and that evolved as kind of the lead strategy for us to acquire customers because we started getting better SEO and and the like on it that obviously matured over time and has become more and more prevalent even in today and now we're finding even as a public company um they're actually acquiring content businesses because um the value that that brings in terms of bringing engineers to the table and kind of opening up the not only bringing them to the table for acquisition but also helping them execute on what they're trying to do on DigitalOcean has really worked for the company but i think the the key uh, if you want to talk about evolution so everything started in that way uh and then mitch kind of was the glitter guy in terms of marketing and just kind of built the brand and built the recognition and kind of got it out into market but very directly towards kind of the core developer 
I think a couple of things have evolved. First of all, the customer base has evolved. So whereby 10 years ago or eight years ago, it was a $5 customer that was a hacker developer. And we, you know, our average revenue per customer was probably about $20, 15 to $20 a month. Now um, the company boasts, you know, whole VIP category of, and this is, you know, from as of when I left, whole VIP category of customers that are larger companies that have evolved, either built through the whole mechanism, started small and grown, or have just come in kind of in mid growth to uh, to um, DigitalOcean, and uh, and so we see a much wider use case, wider wider set of um, options and capabilities and and the competitive set has evolved as well so where it started as a very simple 55 you know up and running 55 seconds five dollar droplet directly to an individual developer that's evolved into this much bigger representation of the credibility and the security and the capabilities of the platform um, to a much more mature audience with multiple layers of services and offerings that allow them to do what they need to do so the complexity of that, the complexity of the method has grown significantly. So that requires a comms department, that requires uh, much more targeted um, paid marketing, much more strategic paid marketing. Um, it requires just a whole bunch of different layers of, of marketing activity. You know, we introduced, I think, in the second year or so, developer evangelist capabilities, and that now has grown into a whole community aspect of, our, of the platform. And so there's a lot of maturation and development and, and kind of evolution of the whole one, the message, but also the delivery mechanisms of that message into market. The great news about DigitalOcean though, is it never needed salespeople. And so that's so as opposed to a lot of the competitive businesses out there, not competitive in terms of product, but you know, other technology startups out there that spend incredible amounts of money on sales and marketing. DigitalOcean always had a very minimal sales and marketing budget because it just didn't need to build a massive sales organization to grow. That speaks back to your product market fit, right? Exactly, um, yeah. Uh, a couple of things I wanted to touch on there. One, um, you talked about, you know, doing so much content marketing, they got to the point where they're buying content businesses. Yeah. Um, for founders or entrepreneurs who, uh, they, you know, they don't see the direct ROI like a pay-per-click ad. What, yeah. what would you tell them how do you defend the idea of buying content businesses or, or getting into content marketing when everything isn't one for one trackable right off the bat? Yeah, very good question. And, and a very early conversation we have with, with, um, you know, with founders all the time, you know, we talk about the laying the seeds of long-term acquisition and content tends to be one of the best ways to do that. Um, we talk about the simplicity of how you start and then how that builds over time. And the interesting about content marketing is it's minimal um, budget. Like there's, it's a resource requirement in terms of just time and effort, but it's a minimal budget because you're not actually buying anything. You're just putting content out there and then over time you'll build SEO around it. Now, buying content businesses is a very numerical decision. You know, we have a very, um, clear value to a piece of content and what kind of uh, business that brings to the table. And it's as simple as if it makes financial sense to buy this business that has a thousand articles that are going to create this much value and return for us, then, then that makes sense to, to make that acquisition. So it's a very simple acquisition model. Um, I don't think that 
you know, an average company should just go buy businesses until they've proven that that actually uh, generates the, the acquisition and the returns that they want it to generate. But I do think for most companies, a lot of companies at least, um, especially ones that are working with professionals or even actually even consumer direct stuff, like content is valuable. People do read and, the, and SEO does a huge amount of work for you. And so um, beginning, not measuring the short-term returns, but just building the, the library, um, you start seeing returns two to three years out that are pretty good. And, and that's, you know, I think to this day, content is probably the largest acquisition mechanism that DigitalOcean has in its arsenal. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, it kind of relates to another subject. I, uh, I think you were saying that one of the founders, was it Matt? that you said with the, the glitter guy, the guy who, no, who got out there Mitch. and was a recognized yeah, personality? Mitch, Mitch Wainer. Mitch. Matt Hoffman was the head of talent who came that's over right. to him. But Mitch Wainer was, uh, I mean, uh, one of the loveliest people you'll ever meet um, and was just such a great glitter guy just in terms of marketing and just understanding how to speak to, how to speak to market, what to put out there, how to create hype and energy around any brand. And what was his title at the time? Was he the... Yeah, he was head of marketing. Head of marketing. So you okay. was a co-founder and head of marketing. Okay. Um, so the, here's, I'm going to give you kind of like the devil's advocate again on this one. Like the yeah. idea of having a co-founder, someone that valuable out, um, you know, speaking and doing the things to become like a high profile, pers high profile person in their space, kind of like those like credibility marketing things. Like um, there's a lot of things you guys probably get have done with this time. Like why, what, how did you guys come to the conclusion that that is a wise use of time for someone as valuable as a co-founder? So, so just to be clear, um, Mitch was, when I say he's the glitter guy, he was the glitter guy in terms of aesthetically putting the brand of DigitalOcean out oh, okay. there. He wasn't the guy going up on stage. And if anything, I would say actually Moisey and Ben were more, uh, you know, more the stage ready people. And what were their uh, titles? So they both co-founders. So uh, Ben was CEO and Moisey was CPO. Okay. But I don't think the company didn't make it anywhere because we had people up on stage. You know, the the it was really all digital. Everything was everything came out digitally, and um, you know I give Mitch a lot of the credit because he and again that you know the the marketing organization that was ultimately built around him and then I think he left the firm and probably 2017 or something like it, it became much bigger than just him, but at the very early stages, it really was him, you know, you know, droplet for $5, you know, up and running in 55 seconds, just as like these quirky little things that just captured the imagination. Like a, of the like a hook point to get somebody's. Yeah. He just knew how to like capture that imagination. It was just yeah. throwing these things in there and it's a great, uh, it, it's a great asset to have in your founding team. It's just that creativity and that, you know, when you meet him, you realize like he comes with, into the room with such positive energy and then you see that translated in the work he does. It just delivers that positive, positive energy out to the community. Well, especially when you think that people are inundated with so many offers and so many options. If you don't have something that sparks that imagination, like you said, or has get that hook into somebody like for that, that hook point to get them to stop scrolling, you don't, you don't, you don't get a chance to explain what your offering is if you can't get them to stop scrolling, right? You know, I think DigitalOcean had a unique collection of magical ingredients in its founding team. Between Ben, Moisey, Mitch, obviously I added my part to it. 
But there was a really, really great combination of little magical pieces. And I think as you think about founding teams and as we talk to founding teams, recognizing the dynamic and how they complement each other and where they fill in, you know, fill in the key places. I'd say the Ben Moisey Mitch combination was missing what I brought to the table. But then with me joining, we filled that gap. And there's always going to be some gap no matter who the founding team is you're working with. So the question is, how do we help them figure out where is the blind spot? Where is the gap? How can we help you with that? How can you eventually fill that? And, um, and you know, try and recreate that magic that, you know, I was lucky enough to be a part of at DigitalOcean. Yeah. So um, what's one more of the principles from your DigitalOcean life that you, you've really brought to M13 in a big way? You know, one of the big things... Um, that I've spoken about a bunch is, is kind of the approach towards business you know, I've, I've been able, I've been through enough crises in my life to realize that, you know, being calm and not reacting aggressively or knee jerk reactions to things, is probably one of the biggest tools that anybody can have in their arsenal. Um, I, I've worked with a lot of very emotional founders that create more problems for themselves because their emotions aren't helping them. And I'm not saying that people should be robots by any means, not at all, but being able to take a breath and calmly, you know, understand the circumstances you're in and try and solve for those is, is a real skill set, the talent, and I think everybody should practice it. And different people do it different ways, you know, whether they're doing breathing or meditation or things like that. But um, for me, it was just something that, you know, I was lucky enough to kind of to have and uh, it allows you to get through crises a lot. I think, Another extension to that is you, you don't really test people in the good times, you test people in the crises. And so understanding who you have on your team, understanding um, how to build the people around you and how to build an organization around you, going through a couple of those tests is sometimes healthy because it allows you to really see what's there. And, and at the end of the day, I think no co any company is only as good as the people and the team that you've put together to make it happen. I, I can make some guesses, but I, I want to hear from you. When you think about the the unfair advantages that M13 brings to the market, when you think about maybe what you guys do that not all your competitors are doing, what, what mm -hmm. would you put on that list? Yeah, I think, you know, when we established um, M13, so I joined for Fund 2. Um, fund 1 was Karch and Corny, my partners, um, set up Fund 1 themselves, and then as they were thinking about uh, you know, doing an institutional fund too. They, that's when they came to me and asked me to join. And, and my, you know, I talked to them for quite a while through the year of 2018 about what it would be and, and what we wanted to build and how it'd be different. And, and I really took it as, Hey, listen, I've had 20 years plus of, um, relationships with VCs and institutional investments and building startups. And I've made more than my fair share of mistakes and somehow I've navigated through and come out the other side, which is great. And, but not everyone gets that. No one, not everyone gets that lucky, but in that I've collected so much understanding of where people were helpful and where people weren't, how things helped and how things didn't. And so my, my key conversation with Carter and Corny was, listen, if we're going to build something, first of all, um, being entrepreneurs, we all think about disruption. We're not just trying to build a carbon copy of, of someone else. And so if we're going to build something, how do we make it disruptive? And in order to make it disruptive, how do we make it truly useful for founders? And I think what we came to the conclusion of is that even the best firms out there tend to be very reactive. Even the ones that have platforms and solutions tend to use them reactively. And I think one of the biggest differentiations 
and they also tend to work very vertically in general, which means that the lead investor is kind of the core person that's focused on that business. So there's two key things that I think we've done in the way we structured ourselves, the way we work with founders, which really differentiate us. One is we are very proactive. We like to think very, very uh, proactive. We work proactively with our founders. We partner with them and we think about what's coming up and how to help them on the next steps of their journey, rather than just reacting to whatever problems they're facing in real time. And the second thing is we've built a truly horizontal firm. So when a founder partners with M13, one of the first things we do is we do our welcome meeting. Our welcome meeting is we bring all the other partners into the firm, into the conversation with the founder, and we introduce the whole organization, the skill sets, and all these operational capabilities we have across the firm. And we essentially create an open door whereby even if I'm the lead, de the deal lead, and I'm the one you know with the personal relationship in the board seat, the founder through our Slack channels and how we do it has direct access to all the other partners. And we regularly see multiple conversations going on, multiple parts of the portfolio companies talking to different parts of our organization. And we can proactively work with them on, on how to address and deal with growth challenges that are facing them coming up. So it's that horizontal nature of how we work. We all share information internally. Everybody knows what's happening across the whole portfolio. And that proactive attention to what actually is going to help a business get up the curve. I think are the two key things that really, really differentiate us. I'm not saying that nobody else does some similar stuff, but I think we've gotten really good at that. And that was the principle by which we started the firm. Why do you think others haven't recognized that need as well? I think people slowly are. I think we have this concept of venture as a service being like the future of where venture is going. I think uh, if you go back a couple of decades, venture was about the capital. Um, more than anything, and maybe some level of mentorship or advisory, but mainly the capital. I think in the mid to late 2000s, mainly into the teens, you saw people beginning to build platforms and support solutions and the like. But again, a lot of it was very hands-off, just kind of from an evolutionary standpoint, people didn't just dive straight in. I think there's a very, very delicate line between overstepping and not being helpful enough. And uh, I think perhaps in the years past, people have overstepped and, you know, created problems with their founders as a result. And so as a result, they've taken that default position to take a step back. What we do is we very carefully, you know, tread on that line and make sure that we're not overstepping that line. But we, we are constantly committed to trying to stay as close to the line as possible because that's where we can be the most helpful. Um, and I, I think now that, you know, in the old days where money wasn't that as available as it is today, um, people didn't need to do these things because the money spoke for itself. And so, you know, founders were looking for that investment. But today, as money is becoming more prevalent, as more and more funds are uh, launching and there's more competition, you know, where you can put your money to work, people are realizing that they actually have to be more helpful and more active to, to be able to get into the right deals. And I just think it's an evolutionary process. So 10 years out from now, we think the model that we hopefully are pioneering, this kind of venture as a service model, um, becomes the standard way in which venture gets involved. Like we're there to help, we're there to build real great businesses. We're not there just to put money to work and sit back and watch. Uh, and I think more and more companies are going to move in that direction. I don't think we're going to be unique. But being hopefully one of the pioneers, if not the pioneer of kind of this approach, hopefully that you know puts us puts our stamp on the table to say, you know, we're always going to try and stay ahead of the curve and always add that, you know, extra layer here and there to, to ensure that we're 
kind of thinking ahead about our business and how we can be more and more helpful and how that's going to reflect on the performance of our portfolio. By the way, if if there are people looking for funding today that want to reach out to you guys, is the website the best way or what's the what's the best? Yeah, way? website or LinkedIn. Um, okay. They can also, uh, you know, directly email into us. I mean, my email is pretty obvious. It's just Carl. It's K-A-R-L. I always get uh, given a hard time for saying Carl with a K, but K-A-R-L at m13.co. And so uh, people can always email us or they can message us on LinkedIn. Um, but yeah, happy to, happy to, always happy to talk to entrepreneurs, always happy to kind of um, help where we can, even if we don't invest. And just quickly, who's read up the fairway for you? Who, who are you hoping is reaching out to you? Yeah, so, you know, our fund is a $400 million fund. So we have two types of investment. Our core investments are like Series A, 5 to $15 million lead checks. Uh, we do have a discovery component, which is maybe more of a seed level investment, which is $1 to $5 million checks. Um, we generally focus on businesses that have a consumer orientation, um, not that they're delivering directly to consumers as much as they're impacting a consumer's life. So it includes the workplace, which we, we think is an important component of a consumer's life. Um, and there are four main categories in which we invest. So we invest in the future of, of finance, future of money, which is everything from crypto to fintech to even prop tech. Future of health, which is mainly telemedicine and, and uh, a lot of mental wellness and kind of just general wellness uh, products. Future of commerce, which tends to be more platform oriented, the things that are supporting, you know, um, uh, the commerce environment um, and solutions for commerce. And then future of work, which obviously focuses on this whole burgeoning hybrid, you know, remote work, local work, as well as kind of gig economy type um, work, uh, work approach that we're seeing more and more in, in the landscape. And so those are the general areas that we focus on, um, really just looking for great entrepreneurs who are building great businesses, um, you know, and looking to find people who actually want to work with an investor as a support mechanism, as much as just a capital, you know, source. Yeah. Um, maybe as we kind of wind down here, uh, I'm interested in any of these zero to billion principles that maybe you observe more, you know, having done it yourself and now invested in it with like a capsule or, or whatever. Uh, interested in any principles that you've observed maybe in a different way as you, you know, as you've been the investor instead of the, uh, the, the one driving the ship? Yeah, I think, uh, I think it goes back to maybe just some of the things that we've touched upon already. Um, it's not just about the founder, it's about the team that they can build. It's also about how, how inspiring are they? How are they actually going to attract the talent that they need to build a billion dollar business? It's just not easy to do. And you don't do it on your own. Anybody that feels like they can build it on their own monolithically is, is probably mistaken and probably not the right partner for us. But, um, you know, can they run that team? Can they build that team? Are they, are they, do they want a partner, you know, in that process? And more importantly, can they inspire the right group, the right talented group to come around them and actually help them build to that, to that outcome? So that those are, that's probably like the most important principle, you know, everything around product market fit and some of the, some of the generic components of the business, either it's no good from the start or it's solvable. But at the end of the day, who's going to solve it? The people. And if you don't have the right people, you're never really going to get that solution.
Yeah. Are there any go-to books or thought leaders that you like to steer entrepreneurs towards as they try to up their keep their people game? Adam Grant is a great thought leader. He's written a lot of great books on the subject. Um, uh, but he he's probably a good person to read on. Uh, I love Malcolm Gladwell. A lot of his great books are actually probably a decade or so old now, but um, but still some very interesting points around Tipping Point and Blink and like some really interesting books there. I have my kind of little book collection up here, so he's trying to my cheat sheet is up there. <laughs> Um, and then there are some specific stories. I really like the hard thing about hard things, which is Ben Horowitz's book. Um, I mean, he was the uh, the the investor in DigitalOcean, and so it was just always really interesting to kind of look at his background and the parallels um, to DigitalOcean. Yeah, what, what was that like compared to the rest of us who only get to see his public perception? Or like, I you know, I've read that book a number of times, and I'm a big fan, yeah. promoter to other CEOs. What was it yeah. like to actually interact with him as opposed to just see him as the public figure the rest of us do? Yeah, I mean, he um, he wasn't on our board. He, he signed all the uh, investment uh, documentation. We had um, uh, a different board member, um, Peter, who was on the board. But uh, but I think he's it's interesting is a lot of the myth around him, around kind of his interest in hip hop music and his kind of social tendency, I think are relatively, you know, on point. You know, he he does have kind of that network and that energy. What I find the most interesting is when you read the book and you kind of see the 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 relationship he had specifically with Mark Andreessen and kind of the the volatility of all that. I've never seen that or experienced that kind of in any interactions with him directly, but it is interesting. I mean, it's something we faced internally ourselves. Um, and so just seeing that that's something that was overcome and some, you know, great businesses have been built out of these di interesting dynamics between founders um, really, really demonstrates that maybe it takes a little crazy to build something really great. It's not just all, <laughs> you know, noughts and ones, but um, yeah, it's, uh, it was definitely an honor. I think uh, we really, we uh, took an investment from Andreessen at, I think, such a great time in Andreessen's history. You know, they've obviously grown so big now. At that time, I think it was probably the perfect size for us. We had, you know, sufficient amount of attention from them and they were really kind of in this growth curve of their own and this attention point of their own. So I think we got really lucky just even in the timing in, in which we got involved with them. This is great. Thanks for doing this again. Thanks so much. It's always a pleasure to chat, Jeff. Yeah, we're just going to have to put you on the back of the calendar. We'll just do every fall. We're just going to have every you have your fall, standing spot yeah. with us. Yeah, I'll, I'll come up with more and more stories every time we talk about the things that we're doing and stuff. That's Keep great. Okay, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. Bye now.